This is Jordan Edwards, and this is the Business Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. Good afternoon, John Donahar. My pleasure. So yeah. nice to see you here, Jordan. Thank you so much for being a part of this project and this book, uh, something I'm incredibly passionate about and excited to be writing. And there is no better person on planet Earth to, to weigh in on the connection between business and jiu-jitsu than yourself, or I would say maybe anything in jiu-jitsu. <laughs> Uh, Jiu-jitsu is a strong point, but business is a huge weak point of mine. So you're going to have to educate me in this regard. <laughs> um, I would probably have to disagree strongly with you watching how you've navigated uh, DJ Fanatics and selling God knows how many DVDs. That's just an expanding market I was able to uh, uh, take advantage of. Yeah. Now, I've been hearing... Uh, Several people talk about your upcoming book. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, what's the basic idea behind it and what kind of directions are you going? I'm, I'm kind of fascinated. I've, I've heard a couple of contradictory reports and I was wondering if I can get the real deal. Okay, you got it. This book is about the connection between martial arts and business, something that has been so impactful in my life. I've been training for the past uh, 11 and a half years under Sensei Nardu, a student of yours. Yeah. And if I asked Sensei Nardu about business, he might say the same thing that, that you said when we started this interview. Although he's taught me more about life and business than virtually any business consultant or CEO or attorney that I've ever come across. And it's because the principles that govern both of those things are so deeply connected. Uh, they're deeply connected in life and philosophy and business. Uh, they're connected in the books that I love to read on war and generals and strategy. And uh, when I wrote my first book, it was alongside my dad. It was one of the most rewarding experiences that I had ever had, chronicling my first 10 years in business. And the moment that book was over, I began to think about where I wanted to plant my flag next. And jujitsu is the thing that I dream about. Um, I will never be an ADCC champion. Uh, I'm lucky to be a grappling industries master's champion but the the lessons are, are are no are not lost on me what's so incredible to me is that when i encounter these lessons at, at the mat chat at the end of each session i take that and i bring it directly with me into work and it, it's funny I've, I've had the opportunity to train under you a few times one time and i think that was my first was when you held a seminar for one of your students, Shaheen. And you, you said something that really kind of rocked me and shook me. And you said, someone could come into your life for one time, for one moment, they could say one thing to you that could alter your whole perspective on the way that you look at things. Um, you then went on to tell a story, and I believe it was about Bernard Hopkins and risk. Yes. Would you mind retelling that story? Um, Bernard Hopkins is uh, uh, one of the best uh, examples of a guy who talks about the notion of uh, risk and attack. Um, he's famous for saying a boxer is never more vulnerable than when he goes to an attack an opponent. Um, when a boxer is set in his stance, he's secure, safe. His guard is up. It's hard to attack. But whenever he goes to attack, he extends himself in ways that break down his fundamental stance and make small uh, uh, temporary challenges to his balance. Uh, 
And so he loses his stance and he loses his balance anytime he take, makes an attack. And so there's a sense in which there's no attacking without risk. And Bernard Hawkins always talks about the idea that when he gets attacked, most people react with fear. Okay, They see an attack come in and they think, my God, I must defend themselves. Whereas his whole thing is to see the opponent's attack as an opportunity. And he keeps telling himself, this is when they're truly vulnerable. It's when they come to attack me. It's actually much more difficult to attack someone when they're in a strong defensive stance and now they can counter your movements. Um, so he's seen uh, a time when most people react with fear as a time for opportunity. And so he waits for his opponent to attack and feeds off that and then goes out to, uh, he made an incredible career based on that simple notion. This story had a, a profound impact on my life in ways that I never could have imagined. And it also illustrated something that time and time again in business, I encounter, which is when to and when not to take risks in proportionate to the outcomes. And uh, even though that story was from a few years ago when I, when I took your, your class, this past year during the COVID crisis, it, it, it manifested itself so many times over. My whole business was on the brink of being out of business, just like most small businesses around the country. I'm the CEO of a company. Jordan, uh, give me a timeline. What, which month of 2020 were you at your worst situation? So I own, uh, I do two things primarily. I'm a real estate entrepreneur. All my background is in real estate, but I started a women's fashion company by accident in 2009. And in March of 2020, when we were mandated to close all of our stores, I had uh, 10 stores in operation, 225 employees, and we, we sell women's clothing. You know, we're not, we're not curing cancer, yeah. but we, we have people that rely on that paycheck. So I looked at my controller on March 17th, and I had to send all of my employees home and furlough 170 people. I still had uh, 30 plus left 30 to 40 employees. And I said, do a quick reconciliation for me and tell me how much cash we have in the bank. He did the numbers. He did the books. We had $9,000 in the bank. Now this is a business that does millions of dollars a year. But if you know anything about fashion, when you come out of the holiday season, you know, you're going to lose money in January and February. March is supposed to be your comeback month. So you invest all of your money into, into the inventory, and then you're going to sell through it. Well, what happens when you tap the credit cards, tap the credit limits? And so we did it. We had 9000 Now, we're always in a normal state of money coming in and money going out. At that moment in time, we had $9,000. So every single bit of jujitsu, staying calm under pressure, the 250-pound guy on top of me can't breathe. Are the, 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 the submission is on and I had to do everything I could to relax. Well, we went from that state to creating a clear plan of attack. And in the, in the subsequent weeks, we maneuvered out of it. But here's where your lesson came into play. As soon as we stabilized the business by June, we could, we could have stayed on the defense or we could have went on the offense. 
And it seemed like there was an unprecedented opportunity to open stores in markets where people had fled from. We have one store in New York, but we're primarily a suburban-based store. So we began to open more stores in the midst of a pandemic. And we opened three locations, which turned out to go from being on the brink of death to milking this opportunity. And that, that was one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you today. That's fascinating. Um, if you don't mind me asking, Jordan, uh, what was it like uh, going through the process of uh, signing leases and getting uh, financial backing during the, uh, the during the pandemic? Was it infinitely more complex or was it easier to get, say, for example, business loans to open up in these new locations? Everything became easier. There were so few people trying to go get to trying to go, people were trying to stay alive, but with so few businesses opening um, and so many going out, there was an unprecedented, unprecedented opportunity to get great, great locations and inventory. And it was an amazing time to take advantage of, unfortunately it was other people's missteps, but when other people were at their most vulnerable, we were able to attack. That, of course, is precisely the lesson of Bernard Hopkins. That's exactly his theme. Um, so that's, uh, it's amazing that you're able to take that lesson and run with it. Yeah. Well, it was, um, it was explicit to me, but business is not always explicit. You can't always draw the, the metaphor. But another thing that you had said what felt like directly to me at that seminar was that metaphor is a phenomenal teaching tool. Is that something that you can expound on? Indeed. Um, people learn in all kinds of ways. Um, I always say that it's not how much you learn that counts. Rather, it's how much you retain of what you learn that counts. Um, lessons are only valuable when they're remembered and uh there are many ways to bring information to people, but there are an even greater number of ways for people to forget that information. Now, when you teach by metaphor uh, and storytelling, people tend to remember the lessons much better than if you just convey information per se. Um, people are, are struck by any lesson which takes things that are unfamiliar to them and brings it to something uh, in which they are familiar. Uh, if, if I can take uh, an unfamiliar concept and relate it to something that my listener is familiar with, then the chance of them remembering it is so much greater. Um, and so in this sense, I try whenever I can to use metaphor to convey ideas to people. I generally find that metaphors and storytelling are the two best methods of getting people to, re to retain information. Um, Whenever you throw large amounts of information at someone that's all new, there's a very, very high likelihood that most of it will be forgotten pretty quickly. Um, but if you can make someone uh, listen to a story or a metaphor which somehow catches their imagination, they'll remember it forever. And so I'm constantly looking for metaphors uh, and storytelling as a means of, of communicating ideas. The few times that I've trained underneath you, my observation when I came away from it was that you were the most effective communicator that I had ever met. This was many, many years ago. I'm not kissing your ass. Uh, your expertise and merits don't have to be celebrated by me. They've been celebrated across our whole industry. But 
It's very generous of you to say, Jordan, but there's probably a far greater number of people who'd say I'm a long-winded asshole. <laughs> I think uh, your medal count in the, for ADCC medals and, and incredible achievements of your students would just, you know, it stands on its own. But uh, that was when I, when I walked away from the first time, I walked out of the room and I said, he's an amazing teacher. He's so precise in the way that he says things. And when we walked away and we performed those techniques, and I've studied under Sensei Nardu, who's an unbelievable martial artist and communicator himself, but I've also traveled the world through my business and everywhere I've gone over the past 11 years, whether it's Puerto Rico or Texas or California, I bring my gi, I bring my gear and I go and train. And what I'm surprised at often is when I walk into a, a no-name school in a small town in Texas and the teacher says, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do the arm bar, this, 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 okay, go. <laughs> My question to you is, was this, your, was this formal teaching and training through your, your work in your master's program to, to become a teacher? Uh, yeah, I, I had the benefit of having many outstanding teachers uh, throughout my time in academia. And uh, many of them did a fantastic job of taking very complex material and bringing it to an audience. I also, when I was at uh, both University of Auckland in New Zealand and Columbia University in New York, um, I also taught. Uh, I was in the PhD program, and part of the uh, uh, of the work was to teach, usually um, uh, beginning university students, freshmen, sophomores, etc., uh, their various courses. And so, in my early twenties, uh, I began teaching. I uh, taught at a much younger age than most of the uh, PhD people um, in the program. Um, that was because of a, a set of uh, strange circumstances that arrived when I first came into the United States. Uh, some of the senior students either had to return home to their various countries uh, or they, they fell sick. And uh, as a result, there was something of a crisis at Columbia Philosophy Department where they needed to bring someone in. I noted, I said to them, listen, I used to teach at the University of Auckland. I know I'm young, but I can do these courses. I've taught similar courses in New Zealand. And so uh, they asked me to teach. There was a very uh, positive reaction from the students, and I was given more and more teaching responsibilities. Um, so I, I taught a lot in an academic uh, foundation. Um, and bringing those lessons to Jiu-Jitsu wasn't much of a stretch. I've always felt that whenever you're teaching any kind of technical skill, the key is not just to convey information, but rather to teach the why as much as you teach the how of everything. Most people teach how to do things, and it's very easy to forget under the pressure of Jiu-Jitsu how to do things. Remember, in Jiu-Jitsu, your your ability to uh, demonstrate whatever knowledge you have is, is made much more difficult by the fact you're doing it in a very competitive situation with right. someone trying to defeat you in a very physical fashion. So not only do you have to remember information, you have to remember information while someone is sitting on top of you trying to strangle you. Um, which I mean, Imagine, if, for example, if we had mathematics competitions where the mathematicians were being strangled as they tried to uh, all complex sums um, it would certainly make their task considerably more difficult. Absolutely. See a very different 
ranking of who were the premier mathematicians in the world if they were had the, <laughs> under those conditions. And yet that's the story of every jiu-jitsu class. So um, again, it comes down to how are you going to make uh, information memorable? Um, one of the best ways you can do this is to go beyond teaching how to do things and start by asking the question, why are we doing things this way? Because when you convey to someone why they're doing things the way they are, why, what's the meaning of it? They tend to see the big picture first. And once they have the big picture as a general guide for direction, then they can always fill in the small details of how to do things over time. So I always begin teaching with the why, and then over time, flesh out the details of the how. You're never going to be uh, an effective jiu-jitsu player if you have a, just a broad sense of direction, because you'll, you'll lose on the details. But you can't, on the other hand, just be a details guy, because then you have no broad sense of direction to go in, and so you tend to meander and get lost in complex side trails and, 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 and never go forward to, to, your, to your original purpose. Right. So you need a sense of direction and purpose, and you need to mix that with the sense of the details which enable you to fulfill that purpose. I normally begin with the big picture and then ask students to fill in the details over time. So everything begins with the why. Why are we doing things the way we do? What's the meaning behind it? Then once that's set, then over time I can fill in details upon details upon details. And I find in that way, students make extraordinarily quick progress and can recall complex information under a lot of stress. I see that your students take in this information and then they're competing at the highest levels, making world-class competitors look like they're in a different, playing a different sport almost. I mean, it was so clear most recently when Gordon fought uh, Mateus Dennis, who's a phenomenal athlete. And the way that you talked about that fight after and causing dilemmas uh, was, was truly poetry in action. I mean, it was kind of like the, everything that you just described, I saw play out. And I also see play out through the lens of my company on a daily basis and trying to distill really important information and get it into the hands of people that have all different skill levels and different understanding, but we're trying to, you know, get to a common goal and a common mission. So Jordan, if you don't mind me asking, you said that you started in real estate and then went into fashion afterwards. Um, of those two areas, which one plays the majority, uh, which one takes up the majority of your time now? Are you more a real estate guy? Are you more a fashion guy? They, they really do go hand in hand. So much of what I do, even in, in the fashion business, is real estate driven because I'm opening stores. That's going to be my next question, Jordan, because when you talked about expanding your real estate business, it was done by leasing three geographical locations that under ordinary times would have been denied to you, but under COVID conditions were accessible. I'm sure that your knowledge of real estate kicked in at that point and was hugely beneficial to you. It was. It was, it was, it was everything. Um, I'm a landlord. I have about 400 commercial tenants around the country in 10 states. Wow. So on the one hand being a landlord, I understand what it means to be a landlord and landlord responsibilities and, and negotiating from that perspective. And then as a fashion entrepreneur, I know what it means to be a tenant and, and what it means to be a great tenant. And so when I go and I meet a new landlord, I'm speaking their language 
and I'm speaking in such a way that they clearly understand that I'm the right person for them to bet on, to put them in a, in a great center, which leads me right back to what we were just talking about, um, being an effective communicator, speaking the language. You have a language, uh, the language of jujitsu in some cases that you have invented your own assortment, not in, that you've invented all the terms, but you've brought them together in a way that makes it easy to communicate. And this is my observation. I mean, you. This is a very important part of um, uh, my coaching program that um, either gets ignored or uh, is treated with condescension. People think I'm a kind of a pretentious person for bringing in different names, moves, and they, 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 uh, I often use uh, old Japanese names where applicable. Um, and uh, I think people perhaps misunderstand what I'm trying to do when I do that. My point is that whenever you look at what most people call expertise in our world, expertise is very often, in fact, I would say in the majority of cases, just the ability to make finer and finer grained distinctions on a complex subject matter that other people don't make, okay? You've all heard the cliche about uh, uh, Eskimos and snow, okay? When normal people talk about snow, there's only one word for snow, there's snow. Um, but Eskimos, I don't know if this is true or not, but according to legend, have a vast number of terms for snow uh, based on the quality of the snow, whether it's powdered or whether uh, uh, ice dominant or, or what have you. So they have around 30 different terms for snow. Now, when we just talk about snow, we just have one generic term, snow, to refer to every case. But to people who, are, who make their living and who live or die based upon their knowledge of weather conditions, they need to make very fine-grained distinctions. And so the simple overarching concept of snow for us is adequate for our purposes but it's not adequate for uh, an Eskimo hunter who, if he makes a mistake about the, the nature of weather, may not be successful on his hunt or might, may even die out in the elements. And so they become experts in snow and their language reflects that. They have many, many terms that reflect the different natures and, and, uh, 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 of, of snow that they, that they operate in. If I may interject for one moment, yes, you're speaking my language. I was a ski racer up until my sophomore year in college. We used to pray to the snow gods, and we had names for every kind of ice, snow, ruts you could imagine. So I, I am right with you. That's funny. Um, but this, this extends across the board. Anytime you talk to an expert on a subject matter, the first thing you notice is that they make very fine-grained distinctions. Um, and so for... What seems like one thing, they might have 10 different terms uh, uh, which denote slight distinctions in that subject matter. And as a result of their much finer distinctions, they make finer judgments and they can express their knowledge to each other through language. Um, imagine you and I were engaged in the repair of an automobile, okay, and neither one of us has any expertise whatsoever in in the automotive industry. We would be so inefficient, not only because of our ignorance, but because we couldn't even communicate effectively. When the car is in pieces on the garage floor in front of us, and I asked you to hand me 
some piece of equipment. I didn't even know the name for it. How am I going to communicate to you to bring that to me so I can start work? Right. But if I say to you, hey, bring me a spark plug, and you come over and I say, bring me a carburetor, and you know exactly what to go to. Um, and then when it comes time to work, I say, bring me a screwdriver. Screwdriver? Well, that could mean different things. You say, I say to you, bring me a Phillips screwdriver. You go, ah, okay, that makes sense. Now bring me a flathead screw, screwdriver. And so one concept, screwdriver, many distinctions within it. You have an Allen wrench, a flathead screwdriver, a Phillips screwdriver. Right. Now we're making finer, we're becoming more efficient as we work as a team, okay, because our fine-grained distinguished, uh, uh, fine-grained uh, distinctions in language and because of uh, the fact that we can, uh, uh, we have a common language that we use to communicate with each other, which it, uh, makes those fine-grained distinctions. In time, we can become uh, a highly efficient team precisely because of the, uh, that language advantage that we have. So the first thing I do when I coach students is I, I get them talking the same language. Everyone comes in the room, they all speak the same language. They learn to make extremely fine-grained distinctions. Um, my students are famous for the use of uh, a leg control method, ashigarami. Okay? Now, there are, when I began Jiu-Jitsu, there was only one form of ashigarami. You just learned the basic ashigarami, and everything was done from there. As time went by, we learned that there are many forms of ashigarami, and I had to denote names for each one of those variations so that when it's time for me in a world championship final to throw out information to my student, I don't just say, do that ashigarami thing that we did a couple of weeks. No, there's a precise, okay? Go into double 50 ashigarami. I can say that in, in two seconds. And now my student knows exactly what I want and he'll go right in and secure it immediately. Um, and so, yes, you're absolutely right. Language is a huge part of my coaching curriculum. Um, it's not just about, you know, uh, appearing to be like an expert or something. It, it really does make a difference in performance. When two people can communicate very, very quickly and make very fine-tuned distinctions uh, in, uh, across a complex subject matter, they're going to be a very powerful team. You get a room full of people all speaking the same language, all with a very precise knowledge of their complex subject matter and making fine-grained distinctions that other people aren't making, that those people are going to, they're going to get a hit. Thank you for going there because you brought up something that is so near and dear to my heart. And another thing, another reason why I personally love jujitsu is because of how technical it is. Yeah. And in business, you have so many people who just want to start a business. You know, they say, hey, John, I see you, you do jujitsu. Let's start a rash guard company. You wear rash guards. I'm, I make clothes. There's so many fundamental things that you need to do in order to start a business. And it's so highly technical. And one of the things I talk about all the time, I'm interested to hear if you think that this is fundamental or like an ABC, or if you think that it's advanced or maybe somewhere in between. But the language of business is something that those who have it are, it's almost like they have a superpower. Studying the fundamentals of jujitsu taught me to appreciate and give me a method to study the fundamentals of business. And I began to excel at a rapid rate in business when I applied my learnings in jujitsu to business, if that makes sense. Interesting. Um, Jordan, I'll tell you this right now. 
language is a human superpower. Okay, that's very important, so I'll say it again. Language is a human superpower. If you look at human beings, we are among the most feeble animals on the planet. If you take a human being naked and alone and drop them in the wilderness, they're dead in 24 hours. Okay, we are physically quite pathetic compared with the other life forms on this planet. Okay, but if you take that same human being and put them in a group of people who can communicate with each other and form teams, and those teams can engage in research over time and build technology, then pretty soon those weak, pathetic humans will be teams armed with weapons that they use, and they will use language as their method of doing this. They will communicate with each other. They will form technology. Over time, that technology will be passed on to new generations through language. And human beings who started at the absolute bottom of the animal kingdom in terms of effectiveness are now reigning absolutely at the top with no one else even close, okay? Precisely because well, there were many factors, but one of the most crucial was language, okay? If humans didn't have language, we never could have passed knowledge on to other generations. We never could have had a cumulative effect, uh, uh, growth of knowledge over time. Um, as humans have become more and more adept with language and communication, their power has increased exponentially, all the way to the point where we can, we can go to the moon and back. Or save a, a business during COVID and bring it from the brink of being out of business. And I, everything that you just said perfectly encapsulated what is so hard for me to explain to someone who doesn't know anything about business, about exactly what we did from March to June, and then from June until now, to save to save the business and grow it. It was exclusively about daily communication, keeping the team together, getting on the same page about exactly what the clear goals were. And it's even people in my business who, who were involved in it would have a hard time truly understanding the, the whole picture, but you just explained it perfectly. I'm so grateful to be in this conversation with you because um, I, in my opinion, you're the most effective communicator, the person uniquely suited for the job of explaining, continue to develop your theories on jujitsu and the language. Um, one just happened to come up in my reading recently that you use, and that's, that is of dilemma. Um, I had only heard it used in that way. Um, from you and from mostly from really Gordon talking about it on social media and in interviews. Uh, and it's something him and I got to discussing the dilemma. But just last week I was reading and I came across it in his book, The 33 Strategies of War by Robert Greene. And he's talking specifically about William Tecumseh Sherman, who um, was a, a Civil War era general. And when he was on the brink of winning the Civil War, he talked about something called Horn of a Dilemma. Was this something you came to through the course of your own studies or somewhere else? Or um, I, I didn't come into it through Sherman. I am a huge uh, uh, fan of the study of military generals. I think many of them are just geniuses beyond compare. Sherman, in my opinion, is one of the most impressive of all American generals. Um, he tends to get a little overlooked in American history. Uh, but in terms of just military accomplishments, I'd put him 
very, very high uh, in, in the list of American military generals through, through history. Um, for example, in terms of just uh, battlefield tactics, I rate him higher than his, his other Civil War contemporaries, in, including um, uh, Lee and, and, uh, and Grant, who got most of the attention in the Civil War. Um, with regards to Dilemma, uh, anytime you're engaged in a zero-sum game where there's a winner and a loser, most people are looking to create problems for an opponent. And the intention is to create problems for an opponent at a rate faster than his ability to solve them. And if you can do this in time, you will inevitably win. That's a fine strategy and one that works extraordinarily well. Um, but my point was that uh, there's a different way of doing things, which instead of creating problems for an opponent, the idea with a problem is every problem has a solution. And the question is, can you solve the problem in time? Coming from philosophy and moral philosophy, they often talk about moral dilemmas. Okay, and the idea behind a dilemma is that there is no solution. There's only two bad outcomes, and you have to cho choose between them. The, presumably, you choose the, the least damaging bad outcome. Um, so I took that into jiu-jitsu and said, instead of creating problems for opponent, let's create dilemmas. And these tend to freeze people. When someone's caught in a situation where whatever solution they propose to a problem leads to a bad outcome, they tend to freeze. And freezing in the sport of jiu-jitsu is, is fatal. And uh, I, I structured a big, big part of my teaching around this here, that most people in jiu-jitsu look to create problems for an opponent, but the higher road is to create dilemmas. And when you can do that, your opponent will tend to freeze. And the moment they start freezing, you can, you can almost always win. Um, so we structure our attack patterns in our approach to the sport in this fashion. As much as possible, you can't always do it, but when you can, create dilemmas rather than problems. And the outcomes uh, are almost always, in any zero-sum game, much more favorable for you. I gave Gordon, Gordon got his shot last week to, to talk, and he was phenomenal on this, on this podcast. It's, he's so young. Um, he's also so wise. I, you can hear him and you and, you know, being around you all day. Um, I, I often wonder if you share philosophy and other things about life. Is it only through the lens of jujitsu or is it also through the lens of philosophy and life and battlefield strategy? Is, is the team interested in those things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you don't, don't forget the, the team spends a lot of time together. You know, if, we, we spend a lot of time training together, but we also spend a lot of time just talking after training or before training. And um, we all have fairly similar interests. And I think uh, most people are endlessly fascinated by talk of things like interesting figures from history. And you can learn so much from the study of these people. Um, uh, so we'll often talk about you know, military commanders or military theory and how it would apply to jiu-jitsu. And um, uh, if we go out and have dinner after training, we'll talk for a couple of hours on various subjects like this, like great figures of history and lessons that we learn from them. And um, uh, so, yeah, we often do talk outside of 
the uh, the context of jiu-jitsu lessons. Yeah, to, to be a fly on that wall. Uh, are you tempted at all to share some of that knowledge and some of your more acad- academia through the, a platform like BJJ Fanatics or any, or any other? Uh, there, there's so many great um, uh, writers in, in, uh, in military theory. Um, I always strongly encourage people to, to read the works of these uh, of great military thinkers. And uh, if you find their works too dull, then just read uh, uh, the, the works of, of great military commanders. Um, they may not have been theoretically as interesting, but they were practically enormously interesting. They actually practiced the ideals. And uh, you can just learn so much from them. Just as a jiu-jitsu athlete can learn a lot by looking at video with other great jiu-jitsu athletes and learning lessons from them. So too, you can learn a huge amount by studying the military campaigns of great generals of the past or the uh, the, the words of, of great military thinkers. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's an enormously um, underutilized field of study for jiu-jitsu coaches. It's one of my greatest hobbies. Uh, I know I'm so early on my journey just because of my own years, but I, I just reading is, I think, the to business and life, what's going on the mat is to jujitsu. You know, to, to all young people younger than me who are starting their career. Do you have any favorite figures from military history? From World War II, um, I love the Band of Brothers, uh, Dick Winters, his, his uh, philosophy through the, the miniseries is how I was turned on to it. And when he famously sieged those, those four guns when they landed, that's what kind of kicked this off for me in college almost 15 years ago. So that was the very first introduction I had to military history. And now I've been reading uh, this book, 33 Strategies of War, which is giving me an appetizer into so many. Our mutual friend, Rich Byrne, gave me a list on Saturday of, uh, of many, including Grant. So I'm about to kick that off. And this past year, I, I was reading extensively about the most recent Iraq war. I read three books uh, that was three different perspectives. General Mad Dog Jim Mattis, his, his recent biography, uh, and then a platoon um, leader in a company called Nate Fick. If you know, uh, he was, he, there was an HBO miniseries called Generation Kill. And he was one of the protagonists of that. And then I read Generation Kill. So I read three books about the same story from three different perspectives. And that was a great, a great lesson for me. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's always fascinating to see the difference between the general's perspective, because he has to see the whole versus the soldier's perspective, which typically is just the events that are unfolding right directly in front of him. And um, often things that make no sense to the soldier will make perfect sense to the general who has a wider view and vice versa as well. Um, uh, and so you always get this competing image of the soldier's point of view, which is uh, somewhat myopic. They just see what's in front versus the general's, which is the longer telescopic view. And trying to find a reconciliation between the two is it's not always easy, but it's fascinating stuff. No, it is. I think that I've taken up enough of your time, your precious time. I'm so grateful that you would uh, give me a shot to pick your brain 
Um, there can be no doubt that you are, uh, you, like I said, uniquely positioned to to comment on this book, and you're going to be a contributor uh, in the in the the record. This is going to be going on forever, and I'm just grateful that you uh, decided to spend your time with me. It's my pleasure, Jordan. I'm sure we'll see each other in the future. I plan on uh, coming down to Puerto Rico to get uh, absolutely abused, broken, <laughs> and battered by your incredible team. No, don't worry, you're a gentleman. Yeah. It was a pleasure to meet you. You too. Have a great day, and thanks again. Thank you, Jordan. 